Episode 158. What if Amazon decides to break into the pharmacy business? Four sticky challenges and a major upside. Today, I speak with Pramod John, PhD, CEO at Vivio Health. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. In In Between Episode 14, I laid out my vision for Amazon in the pharmacy or medical space in general. You're welcome, Amazon. In this episode, I had the privilege of speaking with Pramod John, who sums up the four structural roadblocks Amazon will face if they decide to gin up a pharmacy division. One of his points I find particularly key. Getting cheap, convenient drugs from Amazon is not the point. It's their huge opportunity to reinvent how pharmacy works that really matters here. Today, I speak with Pramod John, PhD, CEO at Vivio Health. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Pramod. Thank you, Stacey. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. You wrote an article that I read on LinkedIn recently about Amazon getting into pharmacy. And I really wish I would have read your article before I recorded in between episode port 14, because I think I would have sounded a lot smarter. You said in this article that you hoped that Amazon would be successful and drive some significant progress towards a market-driven industry. But, you said, Amazon would need to overcome four key structural roadblocks in order to pull off this feat. So let's talk about that. You want to give us the overview and then we'll kind of drill in? Thanks for the, uh, the, the great question. I think that, interestingly enough, often we think of, especially now, the Amazon, you know, Amazon issue being a, a top of mind because Amazon is getting into a lot of different industries and as a result, there's a lot of discussion about, well, how about Amazon getting into the drug industry? How is that going to change or disrupt it? And I think that all of us obviously are, are, would love to see that occur. But, you know, frankly, I think for all of us, the issue isn't Amazon. It's really the question of we're all tired of the way the dysfunction in the industry. And we'd like to see somebody come in and break this industry, if you will, in many ways. And I mean that in break in a positive way. Clearly, all of us think that, well, if anybody could do that, maybe that would be Amazon. And I think that clearly all of us have a lot of hope there that Amazon or someone like that would come in and do that. But, you know, that being said, as you mentioned, there, there are a few issues that need to be resolved. And these issues are, are, by the way, ones that have prevented others in the past who've tried to do something in this space, because this is, you know, Amazon's not the first person if they were to try to make an entree into the space to try to do something in this space, right? There have been many companies before that have tried. If you were to step back and ask, what are some of the key things that would have to occur? Well, one is we don't pay for healthcare in general, and we don't pay for our drugs in general. So one of the big issues is, and why you know in consumer markets, we've been able to commoditize them a lot more easily is because we pay for things. And so when we look at sort of the drug market or anything in healthcare to begin with, the number one issue is taking insurance because it's somebody else who's paying. And if Amazon doesn't take insurance, and in this case, what we mean by that largely is that they are part of a PBM's network, which maybe has a slightly different nuance than when you think about what does taking insurance mean. 
without them getting into those networks, well, it's unlikely that they're going to be able to make any change because most of us, the first question we ask is, hey, do you take our insurance, right? Or in this case, uh, are you part of our PBMs network? And if the answer to that is no, uh, not a lot of interest there in trying to figure out the details at that point. Right. So what you're saying there is that Amazon would need to strike deals with all of the incumbent payers in the marketplace. So they would have to okay this foray. Well, and in this case, normally when we talk about payers, we're a slightly more general situation. But in the case of the drug markets, literally, you know, about three of the large PBMs control roughly 80% of drug spend in this country. And those three, uh, you know, PBMs are ESI, CVS Caremark, and uh, or CVS Health, as they're called now, and Optum. And so in this case, even striking deals with everyone else is kind of irrelevant if you can't strike deals with those three. And and the problem isn't that, hey, I'd like to strike a deal with you. The problem is that all of these entities make money by the way that they construct the system today. CVS has their own retail store, so they want you to go into a store. All three of them have mail order already. So when we think about things like, hey, what's the transformation of Amazon? Is it mail order? Well, no, you can get mail order today. You can go to any PBM, right? And they offer mail order. You can go to Costco. You can go to Walmart. You can go anywhere you want. Today, you can get any of the drugs that you want mail order today. And so when you think about, well, what's the innovation here, right? What what is Amazon going to do differently? Well, it's not mail order because that already exists today, right? With all of the major PBMs. But if you step back and ask, well, why doesn't that work? Well, there are a lot of other structural issues, right? Number one, mail order typically costs you more than what you would have to pay if you were to go somewhere else. And part of the reason for that is because all of the PBMs make money through the way the the system works. And so they're not excited about opening up the network to Amazon. I was just going to say, it's kind of like, come in, steal my lunch. You know, what's funny is that if you remember uh, about two and a half, three years ago, Walgreens, think about Walgreens, one of the largest retailers in the country, their stock tanked. And the reason their stock tanked and dropped by about 30% was that they could not come to an agreement with ESI. And if you were to think about that, what other industry do we have where some company that nobody's ever heard of called ESI has control over one of the largest brands in America that we all recognize called Walgreens? And it's the company that does that no one's ever heard of that controls them, not the brand that we all recognize. Yeah, it just puts a fine point on the idea that we have someone on a previous podcast called it an oligopoly. It's not like we have a system that is difficult to move and innovate within because there's just large entities and it always takes large entities a long time to move. It's that these vested interests have, you know, almost created a situation where you can't budge them based on the amount of power that they have in the marketplace. Well, you know, it's interesting you use the word oligopoly because clearly no question about that, right? Especially when we see the concentration of 80% of our script dollars going through three large incumbent vendors, if you will. But, you know, what's really interesting is if you break that down, they actually, in a lot of ways, look more like monopolies at the level of an individual employer or more at the, at the level of a plan member. You, you can imagine that most Americans who have employer-sponsored insurance don't have the choice of saying, 
I can choose to do whatever I want. You're stuck in whatever your employer has decided. And often these agree. I mean, if you were to step back again and ask, well, who are the people who really control what, what's occurring today? Well, there'd be the carriers, right, who've got struck deals with these PBMs. So you've got to buy into that. You don't have a choice of opting out. Or your employer has also struck a deal with them. And that's how you get drug coverage. So you, as an employee, don't have a choice. And in many ways, at that point, it looks like a monopoly to you, even though technically speaking, it's not at a macro level. Obviously, there's some pros and cons with Monopoly, but they're not necessarily known for their willingness to innovate vis-a-vis disruption. But you said something earlier which struck me, and that's the idea that Amazon wouldn't be the first person to get into mail order. If that's been tried, and I don't know of anyone who, like, I don't know what their net promoter score is, but I would imagine they're not getting a ton of referrals because it's awesome. Do you see that as some sort of red flag for Amazon? Or do you believe that there's other reasons why these mail order, besides the fact that, you know, you've got to buy a 90 day script, they're not super flexible in that way, and the prices might not be comparable. But is that something that Amazon should really take stock in? You know, that's a really interesting question. I think part of it is that when you think about Amazon, Amazon, think about a consumer, think about you and me, think about, I'll I'll tell you about myself. I love Amazon and I use Amazon. I use mail order. I would go to the extent of saying, well, if you don't, if you can't get it mail order, you probably don't need it, you know, type of a person myself. But if you were to step back and ask, hey, why do I go to Amazon? I go to Amazon because I want to buy something that I want to buy. I'm excited about going there because it's typically something I actually want. Think about healthcare and think about drugs. Healthcare isn't something that we want to expend time and energy in. Healthcare and dealing with healthcare is probably number 999 out of the top thousand things that we want to spend our time on. So when you think about most things like healthcare and you think about even drug purchases, we're not talking about something I'm excited to do. We're talking about something that I'm forced to do because I'm ill and I don't really want to do it. And I'm forced to do it because I have no other recourse except to take my high blood pressure medication. But I don't wake up in the morning saying, I wish I had a better experience of getting my high blood pressure medication because I don't care about my high blood pressure medication per se. And so when we think about sort of where companies have done extremely well in in consumer markets, they're largely driven by on the demand side. These are things that we want to buy, not things that we are trying to avoid risk, if you will, in our lives or downside by taking something. And so I think one of the differences for something like drugs or healthcare out of the gate is that they fall into a bin for most of us that we don't want to deal with. It's not about the experience. The good experience for us is not doing it at all. Not that we have a great experience at getting a drug that I don't want to get. I'm not convinced that the primary driver there is going to be consumer experience per se. Obviously, all of us want better consumer experiences. Don't get me wrong. But when you step back and look at even the simple consumer experience, when you think about the drug space, well, think about the you know, Amazon only solves or, or whomever is a supplier is at, the, is at the downstream end of the problem. That problem starts when I'm in my doctor's office, right? I get to my doctor's office. I can't prescribe a drug for myself. My doctor has to prescribe it. So I'm already a second or third party sort of in this transaction because somebody else has decided what I'm going to get. In some ways, the way that our system works with the script has to go to a pharmacy Now with electronic prescription, even sort of what I used to have and being able to control what happens with the piece of paper is gone. It electronically goes to somewhere 
that in this case, I don't even, you know, I have to decide even before it's being sent where it's going to go. It goes to some pharmacy over some network and all the financial aspects of it now are completely separated from the script aspects of it. And so that whole process is disjointed. So now I get a script. I can, the only pharmacy I can remember is the Walgreens on the way home or the CVS. It's sent there. I get there. I find out at that point is when I know, does my insurance cover it? How much is it? You know, all of these questions that we'd want to know about something that we're in, in Amazon. I mean, can you imagine going there and not knowing how much something is going to cost, not being able to control that is sent there, not having to say, I'm going to have to now wrench that script out of my local pharmacy somehow and send it to Amazon. When you look at that whole experience, there are a lot of other pieces that are broken along the way, not just the question of where do you pick up your drug from? And for someone to disrupt this space, they need to also break the hold, if you will, the stranglehold on the rest of the process upstream of what happens with the script and also solve that part of the equation, because that's what's going to lead to real disruption in this industry. And right now, everybody's just talking about sort of the, hey, I got cheap drugs. And frankly, as, as a source of cheap drugs, Amazon isn't unique. You can go to Costco.com, you can go to Walmart.com, you can go to Blink, you can go to a lot of different outlets that offer cheap drugs. Amazon would do significantly better if they were to say, hey, this isn't just about cheap drugs. This is about how we reinvent this industry, because that's what Amazon is known for. Yeah. And you had said that in, in one of your articles, which was a sentence that I highlighted, the idea that the opportunity here isn't for Amazon to figure out how to get drugs cheaper or have them show up at your door in two hours. The opportunity here is around reinventing the whole way that pharmacy works, kind of the whole, I hesitate to call it a supply chain because it might not, might be more of a delivery chain if we think about it in the context that you're talking about. But in order to really have an awesome customer experience, it doesn't just start kind of at the last thing that gets touched. It, it starts way before that, as you suggest. When your doctor asks you now, with, hey, where do you want my script to go? You can imagine now it could be something virtual, like, hey, just send it to Amazon. Then you can imagine now, just like we can think about the world differently, Amazon doesn't mean just Amazon anymore. Amazon means it could be from the marketplace that someone delivers it. It could be some for something local, right? I could pick up sort of locally. It could be something that is delivered to my house in two hours. But the whole notion is all of those things are tied together, starting from my script, leaving the doctor's office rather than it being disjointed in the way that it is today, along with being tied to things like, of course, it can be paid for. And my insurance, quote unquote, or my PBM has Amazon at network. And do you think that that's on their radar or they're just kind of tinkering around on the end game? How much confidence, promote do you have in Amazon's wherewithal in this vision? I don't know. I, I, I would say I'd I, I guess 50-50. And why I say 50-50 is because Amazon clearly has done some phenomenally interesting things. But I would say that in general, they've done those things in unregulated markets. If you were to look at regulated markets, even some of the forays that they've tried to make, even in the food, for example, wine and other industries, they've been largely unsuccessful. And when you think about one of these markets that tends to be a regulated market, and what's, what's interesting about this is that in, in the case of something like wine, wine doesn't have these sort of oligopoly characteristics that, uh, for example, the healthcare industry does because of the reimbursement issue with pharmacy benefit managers. And so it's, a, it's an intrinsically simpler problem. 
So you imagine that in this case, for them to be successful, their issue isn't even the consumer experience issue. The issue is, what are they going to do about these intermediaries who are large incumbents? And so for Amazon really to be successful, I mean, the, the rest of the things that we talked about are just technology. Sure, Amazon could figure out a way. But my last venture, we figured out a way to get around the script issue in the doctor's office. Sure, they could figure out a way around that. Sure, they could figure out a way of if you're a network that you could get paid and improve the, the customer experience. But they're not going to solve the issue that a large incumbent has an economic interest that's going to prevent you from doing that. And that is an economic problem. That's not a consumer experience problem or anything else. And so if Amazon wants to solve that problem, well, then, you know, this is one of those areas where I think Amazon could do it, but their best strategy wouldn't be to partner with ESI. Their best strategy would be to buy ESI and completely change the dynamics of the industry. That would be game changing. And that would be something ambitious and something if Amazon really wanted to change the industry, that would be the way to go about it. Yeah, which kind of brings us to actually let me recap for a moment because we have very frictionlessly gone through the the list of of structural roadblocks that Amazon might encounter. The first one is the the whole idea that they have to take insurance. The second one is that they have to get themselves in network to begin with to have insurance to accept, you know, at the same time competing against PBMs. The third one is e-prescribing, you know, like actually getting the script when the script gets initiated prior to the consumer purchase moment. But then this last idea, which you're kind of alluding to there, which is super interesting to consider, is if, you know, Amazon would, for example, buy a PBM in a situation where there is, as you referred to it, a Gordian knot of perverse supply chain incentives. For example, you know what, I'll let you do the, the, the for example there, but, but how do you see that playing out? It's a really simple, if you will, if you were to think about it conceptually, do a little thought experiment. Here's a thought experiment. About 90% of all scripts sold in America today are generic drugs. But those 90% of scripts only account for 15% of our spend, okay, just right around 15 to 18% of our spend. But to put that into perspective, that's saying that we could give away 9 out of 10 scripts in America, those generics, and it would be a rounding error. It would make no difference at all on our total drug spend. Where that gets crazy then is you realize for the first time where the dollars go are not in the generics, right, that anybody could disrupt, Amazon could disrupt, whatever. The dollars are in brand and primarily now moving to specialty. Now, all of us have probably heard about things like rebates on brands and everything else that we talk about all the time. You know, everybody's suddenly talk about ph talking about pharmacy benefit managers to things like rebates. So here's the problem. The majority of the dollars are not flowing through generics. They're flowing through brand. And now you have a complex problem when you talk about perverse supply chain incentives of manufacturers of these drugs now being tied into these contracts. And so the main reason that you go out and buy a, a PDM, frankly, you know, going back to this example of, hey, why would, why would Amazon benefit from going out and buying ESI? Well, it's actually not for generic drugs, which are the 9 out of 10 scripts. It's for the 1 out of 10 scripts that are brand or specialty that you're buying. Because those account for about 80 plus percent of all dollars being spent. And those are the opaque contracts that actually control sort of the drug markets themselves. 
And if Amazon wants access to be able to change that and bring transparency to the 80% of the dollars in the drug spend, they're not going to do that, even if they gave away all nine out of 10 of those scripts that were generic. And that's the reason why if you wanted to change the industry, the first thing you'd need to do is go in and change those 80% of dollars and how those contracts work with the manufacturers. And today, without buying one of the PBMs, nobody else has enough, uh, if you will, buying power to be able to change that because that is controlled by the current, currently by the top three PBMs. Today, over the last five years, all the, you know, if you were to even get, try to buy a rebate contract on the market, pretty much all rebate contracts today go through one of the top PBMs, one of the big three. I was speaking with one of the largest drug manufacturers in the, in the world, happens to be a brand manufacturer, and they said that almost 70% of their revenues come from the top three PBMs. In fact, the top three PBMs actually control the economics of how they sell what they sell. And this is one of the largest drug manufacturers in the world. At the point that you have that kind of control, we're not going to be able to change these markets until someone changes that stranglehold and the dynamic. And that nobody's going to solve. And Amazon's not going to be able to solve until they can get at the contracts themselves. And without buying one of the PBMs, they're going to have great difficulty because nobody else has enough demand, right? And you can't grow demand when some when three people control 80% of a market, which is why if Amazon wants to change that market, their best bet would be to buy one of the big three. What would be the, and I have a couple of questions for you, my friend. Say Amazon comes up with a better model for a PBM. Do you feel like, and, and there's been a lot of talk lately about employers who, you know, large insured, self-insured employers looking around for alternative options because we've hit this inflection point in this country where, you know, employers are really beginning to recognize the burden of paying way more for healthcare than they're receiving in kind as far as the value of the service goes. Say Amazon comes up with some awesome new style PBM model. Do you think that they would be able to attract enough self-insured employers to disrupt the oligopoly? I think the answer to that is no. I don't think that organically they could do that. I think they're short of them. You know, for example, you've probably seen the press about the HTA, the Health Transformation Alliance. And, you know, what's interesting about when the HTA came about, you know, a couple of years ago, the whole impetus behind that is we're going to do something different than everybody else in the market. What ended up happening was that after, you know, they went through their process of what they went through in evaluation, they ended up looking no different than where they had started, differently than where they'd started. And they ended up with you either buy ESI or you buy CVS Health. When you step back from that and you look at and ask, well, what's changed? And the answer, that's nothing. Even at the level that they had such support, if you will, from some of the largest companies in the U.S., having a very large percentage of market share as a buying group that they could have, in fact, reinvented this industry themselves. They had enough scale because, remember, Amazon coming into this market is Amazon, but they don't have members. They would still have to acquire members, right? But the HTA started with the members themselves. So they had a captive audience. So if anybody had the power to walk up to an Amazon and say, look, we've got 2 million, 5 million captive members, 
and we want to change the way the supply chain works. We want to work with Amazon. If anybody were looking at it from that perspective of who had the members and could drive the disruption, it was HTA. And when we step back and ask, well, what did they do? Well, not much. It looks pretty much the same as where we started. I would step back and say, look, if for someone like Amazon to be successful, then we'd need somebody who's already got the members to stand up and say, we're going to do something and we're going to do something different. That would be a much more likely scenario for Amazon to be able to win versus all of the large buying groups themselves still doing exactly what they're doing today and Amazon trying to pick up all of the smaller mid-small size markets and trying to aggregate them and getting them to change. That is a slow roll. And that is not something that's going to change an industry. It's going to take years and years and years to do it that way. So let me add a wrinkle here, which just occurred to me as you were talking. You had mentioned a stat about specialty drugs comprising a really significant portion of overall drug spend. Wait, there's a stat that I read. By 2018, it will be 50% of all drug spend. But most of these, maybe not most, but let's just say a significant portion of the specialty products out there might be physician administered. So they wouldn't, you know, the chain of events, the journey that we were talking about of the supply chain that we've been referring to thus far has been the Rx pharmacy benefit supply chain. But there's another aspect of that, you know, another category, which are the the ones which are covered under medical insurance, which are administered in a provider office and therefore purchased by the provider. And nothing for nothing. I mean, I read Elizabeth Rosenthal's book recently, which talks about the hazards of buy and bill and the just the, the markups and shenanigans that are afoot in, in that area as well. I mean, clearly this isn't something that Amazon would even touch. Is that your estimation as well? Stacey, that's a really interesting question. And just to just to sort of clarify on that statistic, that 50% that you're referring to is actually not professionally administered. That is in the self-administered space that's going through the PBMs, for example. Oh, wow. So what originally used to be that almost all specialty medications were typically infusion drugs and you know those kinds of things uh, the first big uh, change that we saw there was when when Savaldi hit the market and Savaldi was one of the first in sort of that if you will chain of as we're seeing and and you've also seen the the on, on the on the oral solid side but then on the self injectable side we've seen Humira Embril a lot of these drugs that are used for RA, inflammatory diseases, MS, and other categories, the biggest growing area of spend is specialty overall, right? And the biggest area of growth of spend in specialty, if you will, thinking about sort of a macro professionally versus self-administered, is in the self-administered space. That's the space just in self-administered alone, ESI and uh, et cetera, are predicting that we're going to be at 50% of spend by 2018. Wow, that's something. And so as a result, it's a, you know, it's a very good point that you bring up, which is, well, what's the likelihood that Amazon or someone is going to be able to change that? Well, again, you know, selling generic drugs, which are probably the only footprint that you would have without going to the extent of saying something like, hey, I'm going to go out and buy a PBM and change the model. Well, you're, you only touch a few percentage of points of the overall drug spend, and you completely miss all the specialty drugs, and you miss the, you know, leftover about 35%, 30 to 35% that are brand. 
And if you were to look at pharma today, almost all of the drugs that are coming out in their pipeline are all specialty. That is the new engine that's driving pharma. And so again, disruption isn't going to come because somebody disrupted what no one cares about anymore. Disruption is going to come because we're getting ahead of where the money is going to be made in the future. And we're already seeing that money is not coming from generic drugs, which everyone, you know, again, talks about. It's coming from specialty. And that's going to be the big driver for the future, if you think about margin in the industry. So if someone's interested in learning more about Vivio or reading some of the excellent articles which you have scribed, where, where can they go for that insight? One of the obvious places would be our website www.viviohealth.com. And we've got a media section that's got some of the articles, podcasts, other things that we've put out. And it's got general information. And obviously, it's got contact information on how to contact us if you're interested in getting more details about what we do and how we might be able to help you. Terrific. It has been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast today, Promote. Stacey, thank you very much for having us. And uh, uh, we really appreciate it. And we're excited about any opportunity to think about changing the way we do something. And this is a big area of focus for all of us as Americans. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.